Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus pronounces judgment on the holy city of Jerusalem. As the fanfare of Sunday quieted down, Christ immediately put his righteous anger on display, flipping tables in the temple at the disgrace that it had become, cursing fig tree because it looked the part but bore no fruit, challenging the disciples to pray without doubt, believing, and chastising the religious leaders. For offering only lip service when it came time to obey. There is no doubt most of what Christ offered the week of Passover came in the form of judgment upon the nation of Israel and more specifically those responsible for leading her astray. Turn with me if you will to Matthew chapter 21. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 33. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Continuing to speak to the chief priests and the scribes, Jesus said, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. But afterward... He sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, What will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because the people considered him to be a prophet. May God bless the reading of his word. 
Now, if you have been exposed to Christianity for any period of time, you are likely familiar with parables. Put simply, they are practical stories used to illustrate spiritual truths. A story about a father and his son might convey something about God's relationship with his children. A shepherd and lost sheep shows us Jesus' pursuit of wandering people and the growth of a mustard seed of the expanse of Christ's reign. Despite the relative simplicity of these illustrations, we're at a disadvantage as we read them in our modern day. You see, when Jesus addressed this crowd some 2,000 years ago, they understood tenant farming in a way that is quite foreign to us. His original hearers could easily see themselves as one of the characters. They were familiar with the cultural expectations of the time. And after relaying the story to them, well, it would have needed no further interpretation. In fact, by explaining this parable, we cannot help but compromise its impact. Because the very genius of it is its ability to teach and convict without any explanation at all. By speaking of vineyards and farmers, Jesus was deliberately provoking his enemies without directly calling them out, without speaking their names, without ever pointing his finger. Now, how do we know that this teaching hit home? Well, just look at their reaction. Immediately after Jesus spoke, we're told that the chief priests and the Pharisees understood that he was speaking about them and sought to seize him. They knew what Christ was saying. And so did everyone else, causing even more animosity, even more hostility, even more hatred from the religious elite. Sure, he could have spared himself some of the opposition, but whenever Christ had the chance to confront ungodliness, he took full advantage, even if it meant having a few less friends. Eh? So what exactly was Jesus saying that elicited so visceral a response? Well, perhaps because we are so very far removed from the culture and the context of the first century world, we ought to take a closer look. First, we see the people chosen and the leaders assigned. Take a look back at verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, the word that Matthew uses for vineyard is from the Greek ampelon, used throughout Scripture to describe a physical collection of wine-producing vines, yes, but in a more metaphorical sense, a land of fertility and fruitfulness associated with the blessings of God. And because the vineyard was so closely connected to this idea of the Lord's abundance and provision, it became a national symbol for the nation of Israel to such an extent that grapes and grape vines were engraved 
around the temple door, stamped on their currency and alluded to by many of their prophets. Here, Jesus seems to pull some of his language directly from the song of the vineyard recorded in Isaiah chapter 5, which concludes by saying, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Now you and I probably had to think about that for a moment before realizing to whom Jesus was referring here. But every one of his original hearers knew it simply at the mention of the word. The vineyard is Israel. A nation and a people God had protected and provided for and abundantly blessed. And yet despite his faithfulness in their lives, there was a sense among the people that Yahweh was not fully present among them. It's a thought that lingered through most of their ancestral heritage. The Jewish people in captivity often lamented the fact that God had left them to fend for themselves. They wanted a king they could see because they feared their God had gone missing. Sure enough, when Jesus says the vineyard owner went on a journey, the people would have related that to their present situation. The chosen of God, but rarely with God, at least by way of their perception. And that's not an uncommon skepticism among people still today. In fact, I've been asked on several occasions how any one of us could possibly spend time with the Lord when in the minds of most people, God is distant, detached, and unconcerned with their affairs, at least until the day that they die. The Jewish people struggle with that same fatalistic belief. But even if God seemed removed from their everyday lives, still, Israel was given leaders to teach them, And guide them and shepherd them and connect them to their faith. These are the vine growers in our story. Men who have been entrusted by God to watch out for the vineyard. To nurture the vines, pull out the weeds, and ensure that these chosen people bore fruit. As Jesus speaks these words in the beginning part of the first century, those vine growers... Those tenant farmers, those hired hands who were charged with the task of cultivating and keeping were none other than the chief priests, scribes, and the Pharisees. Man, Jesus is about to indict upon seeing the faithless condition of the Lord's estate. Here we see the people chosen. And their leaders assigned. Oh, but then things begin to turn as we find the contract broken and the prophets abused. Take a look now at verse 34. Continuing in parable, Jesus says, When the harvest time approached, 
He, that is the owner, sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, the owner sent another group of slaves, larger than the first this time. And the vine growers did the same thing to them. As with any good business relationship, the vine growers and the owner would have agreed to certain terms at the outset of their arrangement. As was rather typical at the time, the tenant workers would have been given charge over the vineyard, being allowed to enjoy the protection afforded them by the wall, the shelter offered them in the tower, and the fruits of their labor amongst the crops. In return they would have been required to give the owner a small portion of the produce in the form of rent. It's a fairly standard contract between landowner and the tenant cultivating the farm. And it would have been absolutely and completely unthinkable for a hired hand to then refuse payment to an owner. Not only would that be deceitful and defiant, it wouldn't make any sense. For why would you bite the very hand that feeds you? And that's exactly what these wicked tenants did. Such that when the owner sent a servant to collect his portion, they rejected him. They beat him. They sent him away empty-handed. Over and over and over again, they refused to acknowledge that the vineyard in which they were standing belonged to someone else. And you don't have to be in ancient Israel to experience that. We frequently take the people of God and the blessings of God, and the wonder of God, and in our rebellion, claim them as our own. I mean, he allows us to stay under his protection, to enjoy his provision, to partake of his bounty, and when he asks for a small portion in return, we refuse him, as though all of this belongs to us. Now, that's not a heat-of-the-moment kind of sin, friends. <laughs> that's not a got-caught-up-with-the-wrong-crowd-and-made-a-bad-decision-one-time kind of thing. That's a willful, conscious decision that you make to either give freely out of what God has given you or to withhold as though you own it all in the first place. Far too many of us in this room resemble the tenant farmers in this way. Their refusal to give. Indicating that perhaps we too have forgotten our place. Well, not only would the original audience have understood the tenant's obligation to provide a payment to the owner of the land, the Israelite crowd would have realized that the mistreatment of the servants in Jesus' story depicts the abuse of the prophets 
whom God repeatedly sent to them over the course of several hundred years. God sent one, and he was beaten. He sent another, he was struck in the head. I mean, after a while, they started killing these messengers because their call for obedience were too demanding. Their message of repentance was unwelcomed at best. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks for proclaiming the truth of God to these people. Isaiah was murdered for giving voice to the words of God. Zechariah was stoned, and their latest prophet, John the Baptist, just had his head clean cut off. Others, the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain, experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. As one theologian put it, the uniform hostility of kings, priests, and people to the prophets is one of the most remarkable features in the history of the Jews. The amount of hostility varied, and it expressed itself in different ways, but it was always there. Deeply as the Jews lamented the cessation of prophets after the death of Malachi, they always opposed them when they were here. Until the gift was withdrawn... They seem to have had very little pride in this exceptional grace shown to their nation. With little appreciation or thankfulness for God speaking to them at all. I understand Jesus is talking at this moment to the religious leaders of Israel. Yet sadly, I see our faces in this crowd too. Because we have the words of the prophets. We have the law of God. We have the teachings of Christ, the challenge of Paul. We have God's message right here in front of us. And most of the time, we don't want to listen to it either. Are you there? We see the people chosen and their leaders assigned. We see the contract broken and the prophets abused. Now, as we see verses 37 through 39, we have the father's compassion and the son's death. When all other messengers had been exhausted, afterward, the owner sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. In and out of season, God has stayed with this people in hopes that they would finally produce the spiritual fruit that his vineyard promised and would come to acknowledge him. I'll send prophets, he said, only to be rejected. I'll speak again, only to be ignored. Frankly, I would have cut off communication after one or two such incidents and moved immediately to wrath. But God, being full of compassion for his people, continued to warn them, continued to teach them, continued to send prophets and deliverers in order to correct. How unbelievable is this patience, this perseverance, this consideration of God who proves himself to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Even after they beat and bloodied the prophets, even after they murdered those whom God sent, the Lord's concern was such that he sent them his own beloved son, thinking, Surely they will respect him. Surely they will honor him. I, mean, I know they ignored all the others and worse, but surely, surely they will listen to him. Filled with reference to himself as the Messiah, Jesus tells the crowd how the landowner would attempt to reconcile with those wicked tenant workers. At despite their violation of the contract and their abuse of his messengers, their failure to lead over time, still, God would make a way of reconciliation possible through his one and only son. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews tells us? That God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now imagine the people listening to this parable would have thought, yes, when the son of God comes, we will most certainly receive him. Yet Jesus tells them their rebellion was about to get all the more egregious. For when they saw the sun coming, the vine growers viewed him not as a means of reconciliation, not as a means of forgiveness, not as a means of peace with the owner in whose face they had spat. But rather, when they saw the sun coming, they viewed it as an opportunity 
to take for themselves and be done with God once and for all. And isn't that the utter foolishness of sinful rebellion against God? Where humanity begins to believe that erasing God from their lives and taking control of their destiny themselves might actually improve their situation. When in reality, their situation will only get infinitely and eternally worse. Friends, this is the moment of truth. For those crowded around Jesus listening, this is the moment of truth. For each of us in this room, this is the moment of truth. For Charles Spurgeon said, we must remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. In fact, heaven itself contains no further messenger. Thus, if Christ is rejected, every ounce of hope is rejected along with him. There is no other gospel. There is no more sacrifice for sin. And if you will not believe him, then just like those who hammered the nails, you will be forever damned. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. I beg you, friends, do not make that same mistake. Yeah? We've seen the people chosen and their leaders assigned. We've seen the contract broken and the prophets abused. We've seen the father's compassion and the son's death. And now, as we see in verse 40, the Lord's judgment and the Gentiles' opportunity. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? The chief priests, the scribes, others in the crowd said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Now earlier we read from Exodus chapter 34, which described the Lord as a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. And already we've seen that in the great patience that he showed the people of Israel. And yet Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, doesn't end there. No, God is sure to tell us in the second half 
of that description. That he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. As kind and compassionate, loving and gracious as God is. He is equally righteous, holy, and just. And we all sitting here can be assured that rebellion will be punished. And just as assuredly as I stand here today, rebellion will be punished. In the parable, judgment is the destruction of the vine growers. But in real life, it's eternal destruction for anyone who refuses to repent. In fact, if you thought he would act harshly against those who violated the law of Moses, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has insulted the spirit of grace. Indeed, as Hebrews 10 concludes, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet, somehow, amazingly, miraculously, the judgment of God against Israel and its leadership affords an opportunity for the Gentiles to partake of the mercies of God. Just as he assures the vine growers of their destruction, he promises also to rent the vineyard to other, new, different vine growers who will pay the owner what is due. Now, just in case the authorities missed that when Jesus covered it the first time, he tells them again in verse 43, spelling it out just as clearly as possible. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, wicked tenants, and given to another people to produce the fruit of it. Shocked, no doubt, both by the certainty of judgment on the one hand and the inclusivity of pagans on the other, Luke recalls the reaction of the crowd saying, may it never be. While the shamed leaders wanted immediately to lay hands on Jesus and kill him. And yet, despite their obvious objection to his teaching, this is the simple truth of the kingdom of God. That we can, at the exact same moment, behold the kindness and the severity of God all based on how you respond to the owner's son. Do you see? After the people were chosen and their leaders assigned, after the contract was broken and the prophets abused, after seeing the father's compassion and witnessing the son's death, 
After hearing of the Lord's judgment and knowing the Gentiles have an opportunity, after all of that, there remains but one question left unanswered. Will you, in your life, see the Christ rejected or the Christ received? In verse 42, the illustrative scene of the tenant farmers in the vineyard is replaced with direct teaching from Scripture that indicts those who reject the Son of God. Here, quoting from Psalm 118, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner stone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Friends, I don't pretend to know where every single one of you is this morning. I don't know if you get the severity of this thing or not. And the last thing I want to do is coerce you in some way to a decision. That is not at all my intent. But I got to tell you, there is nothing even remotely as important in all of life than how you respond to Jesus right here and right now. Turn him away and you will be destroyed. That's not figurative. It's not hypothetical. It's not hyperbolic. If you turn Christ Jesus away, you will be damned for all eternity as though you had murdered him yourself. That's what we're talking about here. Reject him. Ignore him. Pretend only while you're here at church. And that will be your fate. You'll be the one who God not only breaks into pieces, as we're told in verse 44, but one day scatters like dust. That is the fate of every wicked tenant who rejects the Messiah. But praise God, glory, glory, and hallelujah, there is another way. A way filled with a future and a hope found when you receive, trust, embrace, and follow the beloved Son whom God sent. The truth is found in Him. And so too is life itself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and gather as your people. Lord, thank you that you are a God of patience and forbearance and long-suffering that stays with us as we rebel, as we sin, as we transgress, as we spit in your face. 
But Lord, you've told us in your word the time for ignorance and defiance is over. Because you have sent the one. You have sent the messenger. You sent your son, Jesus. Help us through all of our troubled understanding, through all of our stopped up ears, help us to listen to him. Knowing that he is our last chance and our only hope. I pray, Lord, that we could learn well from a story you told 2,000 years ago that we could learn well so as not to repeat the offenses of those leaders in Israel where we could rejoice at the opportunity provided to us, a Gentile people who have no claim to you, but by grace can be saved. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity May we take full advantage in the days and weeks ahead. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue. 